Good morning. It is so good to be here with you, to see all of you folks here, to as well welcome you folks who are watching at home. What a blessing it is to be able to stream our services as each week we have not only folks who are just still concerned about being out and about with COVID, they're vulnerable and need to stay more isolated. We also have folks who are on a weekly basis. There are folks who are in the hospital, folks who are dealing with other illnesses and recoveries, and, and it's a blessing to them, as well as I've, I've talked to folks recently who have been watching and joining us in services as they're driving across the country in their car out in the midst of uh, Montana or wherever, and they can watch and join us in our service. That's a, that's a delight and a blessing. So good to be here this morning. As we come to the word of the Lord, let's take a moment and just pray together. Father, we are so grateful that you have given to us your word. We are a needy people. We need to be drawn near to you. We need to learn of you. We need to get to know you better. We, we need to know and learn your wisdom. And you have given to us your word. In your wisdom and in your grace, the written infallible Word of God that has been able to speak across the centuries to each generation as we read and study, we meet you here. And this morning as we come to a passage that can be rather challenging, I pray that you would give us grace to listen and understand. Father, open it before us. Open our spiritual eyes. Help us to listen with spiritual ears, that our hearts would be receptive, that you might teach us. Father, be with the lips of this stammering speaker, and may you speak through me what you desire for us to hear. We commit this time to you in the name of our Lord Jesus and God's people said, Amen. The passage before us, by the way, open your Bibles, if you would, to the book of 2 Thessalonians. We began last week a series here in this marvelous little book. It'll take us the next seven weeks or so to get through this. 2 Thessalonians in chapter 1. I think you're going to want this passage before you this morning because it is a rather challenging passage and we're going to be kind of moving around through these verses all through our time this morning. This passage before us calls for us to lift our eyes beyond the circumstances of today and to look into the future and to see through eyes of faith realities that are not yet visible by sight. Essential realities which we in the 21st century America I fear, even as Christians, tend to discount. To relegate these realities and these truths to kind of the, as it were, the clearance shelf of our storehouse of faith. A couple of reasons I think that's true. First, because these these words in this passage of Scripture before us are aimed at people who are under persecution which is rarely our experience here in the United States. Persecution such as these young believers were experiencing is is commonplace. It's persistent for millions of our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world today. And while we might genuinely look at our culture and at some of the events in recent years and say, you know, persecution is looming on our horizon, and I would not discount that. The reality is that still for most of us in this country today, persecution is not something we know by experience. And that's one reason I think we tend to discount this passage. The other reason we tend to discount this passage is because and it gets little attention from our 21st century American churches and Christians, is because the truths here, quite frankly, are out of step with our modern culture. They are unpalatable 
to modern, sophisticated thinking. By the way, if you're visiting with us this morning, congratulations, you hit the jackpot. Because Brother Harley just talked about giving. And I'm going to talk about hell. The two things nobody wants to hear when they go and see in the churches that they aren't, you know, whatever. And, and so welcome Jackpot Sunday. So this morning we pull these often neglected truths off the shelf from the far end of the back aisle in the corner. And we're pulling them out into the light and dusting them off because these are not insignificant truths. These are not minor realities. The Apostle Paul knows how these essential realities are ones that we need to grasp. Not just for Christians of some bygone era, but for those in the 21st century. And not just for persecuted Christians somewhere far off, but for us here today. And if we truly believe these truths, they will greatly impact and I dare say greatly alter our perceptions and our perspectives of almost everything else. We learned last week that this church in Thessalonica, this small church there, it was a very young church. These people hadn't been believers and followers of Jesus Christ for very long at all. And yet they were growing quickly in their relationship with Christ. They were growing deeply in their faith. And they were living exemplary lives, even in difficulty and hardship. Today we're going to look at verses 5 through 10. We ended with verse 5 last week. We're going to begin there today. And so follow along. Hopefully you have your Bible open. And I'm going to read verses 5 through 10. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Now there's a lot there this morning. But I want to simply call our attention as we try to just get a handle on the the main essential points here, I want to call our attention to three contrasts in this passage that I think will crystallize for us these main truths. The first contrast that I see in this passage is a contrast of present experiences. It's in the now, the present. And he says in the present, in the now, verse 5, he says, you are suffering. These Thessalonian believers are undergoing severe hardships, severe suffering, and despite their sufferings, they are persevering, they are standing firm in their faith, in their trust in Jesus Christ. And their faithfulness proves that they are the real deal. These are folks who sincerely love God and love His kingdom and seeking His kingdom. 
That's the point, I believe, of verse 5, which in itself is kind of a tough one to just work your way through. I think it'll help maybe if I paraphrase that verse, because I think I can maybe say it in a different way that makes it clear what it is saying. Here's my paraphrase. This, he says, meaning your perseverance in suffering, because that was the thought just before this. This, your perseverance in suffering, is evidence that God's judgment is right. You are worthy of the kingdom of God, demonstrated because of your suffering for it. These folks, they're not saved because they're suffering for the kingdom. But their suffering for the kingdom proves they're saved. They genuinely are trusting Christ. That's the first thing of the present experience here. These people are suffering. The second thing of this present experience, there's a contrast here, and that is that they are afflicting you. You are suffering. Contrast, they are creating the suffering. They're persecuting you. They're afflicting you. These dear faithful Christians are being persecuted by ungodly people who hate them because they hate Christ. And so, God's faithful people are suffering while ungodly people are beating up on them and they get away with it. And I don't know about you, But if I were in that circumstance, and I can't say I've ever really been in that circumstance, but I have a feeling that if you and I were under that circumstance, we'd probably be thinking, hey, that's not fair. That's not right. God, your people are here getting beat up on, and the bad guys are doing it, and they're getting away with it. It's not a new question. Not something we would invent. I think it's something they were experiencing. That's the point here of this passage. And it's a question Old Testament saints, saints through the ages have wrestled with. From Job to Jeremiah to David. Why do evil people prosper and the righteous people get beat up on? Good question. We're not really going to deal with the why. We kind of did that last week. God is working a purpose. But it is their present experience. The third thing I note about this present experience and the contrast that is here is it makes the point that while that is our present experience or is their present experience, these Thessalonians, there's a change coming. Verse 6. Since indeed God considers it just, and then he goes on to explain the change that's coming. There is a change coming because God is just. And God is going to bring about a change. God's justice will show up. Make no mistake, brothers or sisters, whatever you are enduring today or whatever you are enjoying today, whatever your circumstances today, things are going to change. It's a big change coming one day. The things, the way things are now is temporary. There's a new age coming. It is. What these folks were suffering for, the text told us back in verse 5, it's the kingdom of God. It's a new age coming. Things are going to be different one day. Well, when is that change going to happen? If we're in the midst of suffering, that's what one of the things we probably want to know. Okay, there's change coming. When? Well, he doesn't tell us when. But he tells us, The event that's going to begin, that's going to usher this in. Verse 7. When is this change going to come? When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven. He says there in verse 7. When Jesus is revealed. That word there for revealed in Greek is the word apocalypsis. We recognize that right away. That sounds like apocalypse. It's the same word. 
Now, if you ask people of our day, what does the word apocalypse mean? Generally, people will say, if you look it up in the dictionary, which I did last night, just to see what they said. They said, the end of the world. Destruction. Some calamity. Well, that's what it's come to mean, but that's not really what the word means. The word apocalypse is, means the revealing. The revealing. You see, when Jesus Christ came 2,000 years ago, we, we learn from Scripture that he, His glory was, was veiled. He came veiled. We, the, the Bible says, John 1, we, that we beheld His glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Even when it was veiled, we could see His glory. The New Testament writers are full of trying to describe the glory of this One. But let me tell you, they, don't, they didn't see but just the tiniest fraction. We haven't seen Him in His glory because His glory was revealed. Jesus Christ ascended to heaven. Now He sits at the right hand of the Father. Again, He is the God-man, fully God, fully man. He is sitting there in great glory, but we don't see it because He's there, we're here. But the day is coming when Jesus will be revealed from heaven. When Jesus comes from heaven, and finally at that time, every eye will see Him, every person will see Him, for whom He truly is. I guess it's for who He truly is, you, Greek, you uh, English people. We'll see Him for who He is in all of His glory. It says here in the text, we will see Him with His mighty angels, verse 7, and in flaming fire. With His mighty angels means that He will have unimaginable power. Now, Jesus is all-powerful anyway. But coming with Him will be the host, the armies, the incalculable number of angels who will follow along with Him. Angels of far superior power to us. It will be frighteningly awesome. And in flaming fire, in glory, in holy purity... And in judgment, all of those things pictured in that imagery of fire. Jesus Christ will be revealed as God, the God-man, the Son of God, the Lord of all creation, the Creator and Maker and Sustainer of all, the Judge of the universe, the Omnipotent One. All of these things will be seen and known. That's what it means when it says, Apocalypsis, He will be revealed. See, the Apocalypse, the Revelation, is the name given to the last book of our Bible. Not because Apocalypsis, and that's by the way, the title of the book, Revelation, is simply Apocalypsis. It's there not because that means the destruction of the world. It's there because it means the revealing of Christ. And the whole book is all about leading up to the last days, the last events, leading up to that day when Jesus Christ is revealed from heaven. Revelation chapter 19, when He comes from heaven with the mighty armies of heaven and He subdues His enemies. And chapter 20, He establishes His kingdom on earth, ruling from Jerusalem. And He rules and reigns on earth for a thousand years. And the Scripture says, by the way, we rule and reign with Him, we the saints. Then it moves on, chapters 21 and 22, from there to a new heavens and a new earth, and our eternal home forever. All of that pictured here in the revelation, the revealing. When Jesus comes, things will be different from then on. Things will be different. 
And that day when Jesus is revealed from heaven, it brings about another great contrast that is talked about here in this passage. We move from the now and the contrast of our present experience and we move to the then. To the return of Christ and to a contrast of destinies. See, the question is, is there going to be justice for godly people who are suffering at the hands of ungodly people? Yes. The justice of God will show up. It will show up when Jesus Christ comes. Notice verse 6. The first of these two destinies is awful judgment. Verse 6. God will repay them who, the persecutors, the afflictors, with affliction. God will execute Perfect justice. It says He will repay them. Exact repayment. What is owed will be paid. The Old Testament prophet Nahum says this, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. See, people who think they got away with it. No. God knows everything. He is omniscient. And as the Apostle Paul says in chapter 2, on that day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed, speaking of the return of Christ, he says this in verse 4 of Romans 2, He, Jesus, will render to each one according to His works. God knows everything Everything, and he forgets nothing. I go back two, three years ago. Let's say October 10th, 2019. That'd be three years ago, right? Two years ago. Two years ago. I'm not good at math. I'm a musician. Okay. Two years ago. I can't remember when it was. <laughs> I have no idea what I did on October 10th, 2019. You probably don't either. Unless maybe you got married or something. You know. God knows every single detail. And He says, verse 8, God will inflict vengeance on them. God hates sin. And the Scripture tells us that God is going to pour out His wrath on sin. The wrath of God, Romans 1 says, is being revealed against all the unrighteousness and, un and the godlessness of men. He will avenge every wrong, every sin, every murder, every atrocity, Every theft, every bit of violence, every bit of malice, every hurt, every slander, every curse, even every evil thought. God will inflict vengeance on them. He will repay them with affliction. See, these are not things we want to hear. This is why people want to avoid talking about such things. And if it were just Pastor Keith telling you what I thought, you should all just walk out. But this is the Word of God. We go on. Verse 9. They will suffer. They will suffer. They will suffer, it says, verse 9, the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. They will suffer punishment. 
How many times have you heard what I've heard from people so many times? Well, you know what? I don't care if I go to hell. All my friends are going to be there. And I won't be with my friends so because we, we're going to have a big party. They may think that, but they are wrong. Hell is not what we think it is. Hell is what God says it is. And God says it is punishment. Gentle Jesus Himself speaks of hell more than anyone else in Scripture. Some of the words Jesus used to talk about hell. Luke chapter 16, the story of Lazarus. You probably remember the story. Jesus describes hell as torment. Agony. Jesus, many times in Scripture, one example is in Matthew chapter 8. Jesus is describing hell, He says, as outer darkness. Where He says, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus said that a lot, so He must be trying to let us know, yeah, this is not good. It's punishment. He says in Mark chapter 9, quoting from the prophet Isaiah, Jesus says, it is where the worm does not die and the flame is not quenched. Pastor, are you saying hell is really about worms and flames? I don't know, but I don't want to find out. Is he just using imagery to try to describe just, it's bad. Well, he's trying to say, it's bad. It's not a party. It's punishment. He goes on in this text. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. There are many who want to say that if you don't go to heaven, you simply cease to exist. You are annihilated. You become extinct. That hell, maybe if it exists at all, it exists as a temporary thing. And and they use maybe this verse even to say, you go to eternal destruction, so you are destroyed and you cease to exist. But that's not what the word means. The word destruction there doesn't mean annihilation or extinction. It literally means ruin. It means destroyed, but alive to know it. It is eternal Hell is an eternal existence of ruin. That's the point. Hell is agony. It is punishment. It is eternal. And thirdly, he says here in the verse, it is away. Away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. Hell is banished from the presence of of God. You know, in our world, many people have rejected God. They've waved their fist at God, denied Him, cursed Him. But no one has lived, no one has lived completely separate, completely isolated from God. Everyone who has lived in this world has lived, albeit we all live in a broken and flawed world because of sin. But in the midst of this broken and flawed world, every one of us enjoys what theologians often call the common grace of God. Sunshine, rain, water, food, pleasure, beauty, butterflies, puppies. James 1.17 Every good gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights. If every good gift comes from God, then if you are banished from God, isolated from Him, there are no good gifts. Nothing that makes eternal living Eternal existence, pleasurable, enjoyable, pleasant, even tolerable. Do you see what he's saying here about hell? It is awful judgment. 
There is punishment. There is vengeance. It is eternal. It's separate away from God. It ought to stun us. It causes some to say, I can't believe in a God like that who would send someone to hell. Well, brothers and sisters, it doesn't matter, as we said earlier, a bit what you think. It's a question of what is. The Bible could not be clearer. These, this truth is somber. It is sobering. It's shocking. It's frightening. But there is no escape that that is exactly what God says in His Word. Hell is an actual, eternal destiny awaiting many when Jesus returns, when He is revealed. There's a contrasting destiny also in this passage that awaits others when Jesus returns. It's a destiny described here of marvelous glory. Verse 7, when Jesus Christ returns, verse 7, God will grant relief for you who are afflicted. The Greek word there is anison, just like the pain relief pills. It's where they got the name. The word means literally rest or relief or freedom. All of their suffering, all of their trials, all their sorrows, all their pain, it's over. Wow. Yes. Want that. But there's more. It says, when He comes on that day, verse 10, when He, Jesus, comes on that day to be glorified in His saints. A second reality of future destiny, for this group, there is transformation. Not only is there relief, there is a transformation. The transformation is that their salvation will be finally fulfilled. Their sanctification will finally be realized. In other words, everything that God has desired them to be, everything that God designed them to be, everything that God saved them to be, they're going to be. I love that old hymn. One of the verses is a tongue twister, if I can manage to remember it and get it out. Then we shall be where we should be. Then we shall be what we should be. Things that are not now nor could be soon shall be our own. That's what it's saying here. Everything that should be finally will be in us. And the reason I know that's what he's saying here is because he says that he, Jesus, will be glorified in us. Finally, you and I will do what God created us to do, which was to reflect His glory. To be His image bearers who without stain, without qualification, well, you know, apologize for this or that, but who fully reflect the glory of God. The glory of our Lord Jesus. That's what John is saying. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. What we will be, we don't see. Right now, God says, you've trusted in Jesus Christ. He says, you're my son, you're my daughter. <laughs> we look at you and go, yeah, right. It hasn't appeared what we shall be. But we know that when He appears... The revealing of Christ, the revelation of Christ. When He comes back, we'll be like Him. For we shall see Him as He is. There you go. There's a transformation. The metamorphosis is complete. The worm, the caterpillar, becomes the butterfly. What God has designed us to be. That's an awesome destiny. There's relief. There's transformation. 
glorification. And there's still more. Again, I have to just limit myself here. Verse 10. He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints, verse 10, and to be marveled at among all who have believed. I'd like to talk about being that we're, how we're going to marvel at Christ and, and honor Him and worship Him, but I'm not going to focus that. I want to focus on one little word that we probably would overlook. It's that little word, among. He, Jesus, will be marveled at among the saints, among those who have believed. You know what that says is, Jesus will be among, with. It's the opposite, by the way, of what the other destiny is, where they are banished from the presence of God and from the presence of Christ. Here, the greatest glory and the greatest blessing, the greatest privilege, the greatest woohoo of heaven isn't going to be the streets of gold. That probably is going to be cool. It's not going to be just the fact that there's no pain. That'll be cool. It's not going to be, you know, all the other things we might name. The greatest blessing of heaven is that we will be there with God. Revelation chapter 21, verse 3. Now the dwelling of God is with men. and He will live with them. They will be His people and God Himself will be with them and be their God. We were made, we were designed, we were built to have fellowship with God. Sin broke that. I don't think any of us fully appreciates how awesome that is and how much we will desire that until the second that we see Him. And then it will be our greatest joy and our greatest blessing. And for those who will be banished from Him, it will be their greatest curse. The final contrast I want us to notice in this passage this morning. We've seen a contrast of present destinies. There's a contrast of present experiences and a contrast, secondly, of destinies, future destinies, the then. There's a contrast now of who, a contrast of identities. You may have noticed as you have read through the, as we read through the verses, as we've talked through them, as you've seen the slides, I tried to make obvious up there that there's another contrast here, and it's a contrast between you and them. Or you and they. It's all through the passage. God will do this for you. He will do this to them. He will do this for you. He will do this They will experience this. You, our passage has told us, are destined for relief and for heaven, he says to these Thessalonians. They, them, your tormentors, your persecutors, they are destined for God's wrath, for punishment and hell. But it's interesting, he starts off talking about you, Thessalonian church believers, them being your persecutors. And he very quickly, when you get away from verse 5 and 6, actually starts in verse 6, starts expanding it to you and us. He moves it back and he moves, he's no longer talking just about the Thessalonian believers, he's talking about all believers. And he's no longer talking about just the persecutors of the Thessalonian believers. He's talking about a much larger group of people. All people will find themselves, as you go through the pages of Scripture, you find yourself in one of these two categories, one of these two destinies. You are either destined for heaven Or you are a they destined for hell. There are only two options. I challenge you to go through the Scriptures. There is no option C. Heaven or hell. 
No other option. So the huge question is, who makes up the you's and who makes up the them's? What is the difference between those who have the destiny of heaven and those who have the destiny of hell? Because I would think that's a pretty important question to answer, wouldn't you? That'd be some really helpful information based on everything we have heard here about hell. Here it is. Most people, by the way, if we went and asked them, who's going to hell? Probably number one on most people's list, people's list, you know, they're taking the survey, Hitler. Who else do we know is going to hell? Well, you know, and so, you know, you go through the great tyrants of history, Stalin and, you know, Mao Zedong, and you go through the dictators of our era, you know, the Idi Amin's and the, the, those people, the Kim Jong-il, you know, and, uh, oh, mass murders, yeah, 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 serial killers, yeah, 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 yeah. Child molesters, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, let's see here, human traffickers, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, and that's most people's list. This passage tells us who's on God's list. Very carefully, read verse eight. He, God, is inflicting vengeance on. Here it is: those who do not know God. And on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. I think it's talking, it's using two different descriptions to describe the same person. It's common in Scripture. Those who do not know God, it means those who have no relationship with God. The they, the them, are those who have no relationship with God because they have not obeyed the gospel. We tend to think of the gospel as an invitation, believe on Jesus. But it's also a command, repent and believe on Jesus and be saved. Or the alternative is the only other option, because there are only two. Repent, believe on Jesus, heaven, don't believe, hell. It's a command. The Bible is clear, everyone, every human person All of us are guilty of sin. There's only one sinless one. That was Jesus Christ. All others are guilty of sin and therefore by default headed for hell. Not because God is cruel. Not because God is sadistic and thinks that would be fun. Let's send some folks to hell. No. It's because God is holy. And His perfect holiness and perfect justice demands that sin be fully Punished. Fully paid for. And so the Bible is clear. By default then, every human, we are headed by default for hell. We're in, we're in the category of the thems. That's who the them is. But, not only is God holy and righteous and just, He is also loving and gracious. And merciful. Thank God. That is, the, that is the main message here of the Bible. That this holy, righteous judge who must punish sin is also gracious and loving. And from the very beginning, right after man fell into sin, God began laying out His plan. How to, to man, laying out, here's how I'm going to rescue you. There's going to be a Redeemer. What a shock it was when we find out that the, the plan is unthinkable from a human standpoint. God Himself becomes man. He becomes one of us, takes on human flesh, fully God, fully man, Sinless, He goes to the cross and dies the death we deserve. Not just the cross, but all of the wrath of God is poured out upon Him at that moment on the cross. As Jesus dies, all the hell that we deserved 
Jesus bears in our place as our substitute. Jesus then, he's, He dies, He's buried, He rises from the grave victorious over sin and over death. He ascends to heaven. He's coming back. And He says, God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. How do we become a you and not a them? The answer is there. Believe. And it's right here. The you's he says here in verse 10, are all who have believed. That is the marvel of the grace and the love of God. There is a hell. But God has made a way where not any person has to go there. There's one thing and only one thing we can do. To avoid the destiny of hell. And that is to believe, to receive, to trust in Jesus as our Savior. Which is the big takeaway from this message. If you're here this morning or if you're watching at home or wherever you are. And you have never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior. The Bible is clear. This passage is clear. God is going to exact Justice for our sin. Every sin we have ever done must be paid for. And either we will pay for it in hell, or we can receive a gift where Jesus says, I have paid for it. And we trust Him. And we receive as a gift from Him eternal life in heaven. It sounds too good to be true, but it is true. And the alternative is too horrible to imagine. And so the number one takeaway from this morning is, have you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? If not, may today be the day that you obey His call and say, yes, Lord, I believe. I trust you. It's a free gift. It's a free gift that changes everything. Nothing else will ever be the same when you follow Him. There's one last takeaway this morning. The second takeaway this morning is that missions matter. The mission matters. Jesus provided the means of salvation, faith in Him, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus assigned us a responsibility before He ascended to heaven. He said, you will be My witnesses. The way to get this message, this good news of the Gospel to the world is us. Again, there is no plan B. And so the mission matters. Jesus assigned that to us. He offers salvation in heaven to any and all who believe. And it's a matter of life and death. It's a matter of eternity. And so the question is, what are you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, what are you going to do with these truths? Have I misstated anything here yet this morning? If I have, correct me. I try to be faithful to the Word. This is what God says. Our neighbors need to hear. Our family members need to hear. Our friends need to hear. Our co-workers need to hear. Your classmates need to hear. And if we don't tell them, who will? Paul's point, Romans 9. We must be busy in the mission. And there is a world that needs to hear. And Jesus commissioned us to take this not just here, but to take it there. And that's why we have flags up here and a missions month. 
That's why we support as a church 25 missionaries. That's why this church, and I love the fact this church has a missions heart. I'm blown away every year at how much you give towards this end. It is a responsibility. It is also an honor. You realize when you get to heaven, someday in eternity, you'll be walking along one of those streets and you'll run into someone and have a conversation. And you'll discover that that someone lived on Paradise Island in the middle of the Pacific of nowhere. And they'll find out you went to Chapel of the Lake. They say, your church for so long was the only supporter of the only missionary on Paradise Island. When they first got there and were working, there were literally you could count the believers on one hand and they were all his family. Today, there are over 50 believers on Paradise Island, despite persecution. And I could tell you that about our other missionaries. That's why we do this. It matters. It matters. Let's pray. Father, these are not pleasant things to discuss, although in this there's tons of good news. But there's also tons of things we don't like to talk about. Hell and eternal punishment and those things, they, they, they frighten us. They upset us. But how dare we ignore what Jesus said so clearly? And how dare we talk in less abrasive terms than Jesus Himself used? But also, how dare we hold back with the gospel? Father, forgive us. I dare say that many here struggle as I do. There's so many times I'm silent when I should be speaking. There's so many times I am concerned about and distracted about so many other things that don't matter. When there are people who need to hear about Jesus. And I'm so distracted, I don't even see the opportunity that is there. So, Father, may we become faithful witnesses and may we continue to be a church that is involved in the mission here, around us, in our neighborhoods, in our community, and all around the world. All for the glory of Jesus, the one who is going to be revealed. The one who will bring judgment, who will also bring salvation. The one who will be marveled at by all who believe. The one who is worthy of all honor and glory and praise and blessing. In His name we ask. Amen.